Welcome to Where Others Won't. My guests on this episode are both revolutionizing leadership. Jamie Cohen analyzes handwriting and Nancy Spotton analyzes psychological data to help us understand our inherent personality traits. They're both one of a kind and the definition of going where others won't. If you like the show, please don't forget to leave a rating on your favorite podcast platform. But for now, enjoy the conversation. This is the first time we've had both guests in the studio. Adam, I feel like Joe Rogan a little bit. People have come to visit us for the first time. We've got Nancy Spotton in the studio. How are you doing, Nancy? Amazing. Excited. So am I. And Jamie Cohen as well. Awesome. How are you, mate? I'm great. That's the way. We're going to talk all things leadership, uh, teams, millennials, data. It's going to be action-packed. Uh, but I actually want to start with you guys. We're going to have a conversation around identity because our three paths are, are quite similar in that very non-linear. We've worn a lot of hats. Jamie, we'll start with you. You're an author. You've worked at Saturday Night Live. You've been a teacher. You're a speaker. You do handwriting analysis. You've got a culture consultancy and a leadership consultancy. So. I want to know from you around identity and how do you introduce yourself at a party when someone asks, what do you do, Jamie? Well, I think it depends on the context of the party. Right. So the short answer would be I help people discover their strengths through handwriting. Okay. So the point of an introduction, I feel, is to get people to ask, well, how do you do that? Mm -hmm. And that question has also helped me beyond just on a social setting. So for example, I was on the, sh on the show The Social several times. So for The Social, it's still authentic to who I am. I introduce myself to the producers as, I help women because it's a primary audience that they serve, discover their strengths through handwriting, and then I provide the outcome so that they can have better relationships. And then, the and then on the show, it was, well, how do you do that? So then I analyzed the personality traits within the context of the relationships of the hosts. Mm -hmm. And I learned that particular seven to 10, you could say, word intro from someone from, uh, that you may be familiar with, Clay Hebert, mm -hmm. who uh, also did Alt-MBA, who has an excellent program called The Perfect Intro. And I felt that that line has helped me in so many different contexts tap into, you could say, the alter ego or whoever I was addressing. But it starts with who I help and then what the outcome is. Very interesting. I want to unpack some of that with you. But Thank let's, you. yeah. Hold let's, on a second. I want to come to that. You said that question. Say that again, how you introduce yourself. If I was at a party yeah. and people say, so what do you do? Or... Yes. I help people discover their strengths through handwriting. I sometimes will add, I help people discover their strengths and identify their blind spots through handwriting. Oh. And then the next thing is people say, well, then do it for me. Which sometimes, if, I, if I'm with my wife, I don't want to be on all the time yeah, because right. it's the kind of thing where people will want me to show them on the spot. But it's really the introduction is not really to impress or to prove. It really is to get them intrigued and it doesn't matter what the person's profession is. It's really to get people engaged and to show them that it's not about you, but it's about what you can do to serve them in some way that they haven't seen before. We should, let's do that on the show. So I'm going to, I'm going to flip it over and ask you the same question, Nancy, but then we're going to go back and, and, and get a live demo, I think. Um, the reason why I said I like it, because all I, when you were talking, all I wanted to do was hand you a piece of paper with some handwriting. You've, you've got me leaning in. And I bet there isn't one person who has walked away from you without like, hmm, I wonder if it is. Oh, the only people that would walk away from you are the people like, oh, God, he can see my secrets. <laughs> well, not necessarily. Like Margaret Trudeau. Uh, I was at a, a get-together with her, if you talk about the party. Uh, it was my agent's party. And a lot of people, oh, hi, Margaret. And she was, you know, making small talk. And as soon as I was introduced to her and she asked me and I said, well, that's what I help people discover their strengths through handwriting. Can we do that? So on the spot, we spent 20 minutes. It was going to be one minute because everyone loves to learn about themselves regardless of their 
interests, their level of success. If you can show them something or reintroduce or reinforce something positive, and in some ways, if it's artfully done, some way they may want to improve, that depends on the context, people want to hear it. They really do, mm -hmm. yeah. And there's elements of, of what you do, Nancy, as well, that, that we'll, we'll talk about that as well, that same concept. Mm -hmm. But how do you do it? Because you've worn a lot of hats as well. Uh, you're a lecturer, you've been in sales, you've been in events, you work at Ontario soccer, you uh, do all sorts of different things. And I heard you introduce yourself before, so I know what the answer is, but what's your party line? How do you introduce yourself in terms of what you do? You know, the interesting part of this is I'm 98% support and affection, so I will always deflect, and I generally do not have an I statement. I will always ask a question of the other person after I've read them. And when they then ask me, well, what do you do? I will personalize the answer and give them the answer that they want to hear based on what I read from them. And if you're interested, very authentically interested, I'm going to answer the question in an analytical way. If you are not really authentically interested. It's how you ask the question, what your body language is telling me, whether you're leaning in, you're leaning out, your eye contact, your energies that you're giving me. I will formulate the answer that you want to hear, which is a bit of a deflection and very consistent with my profile because people who are high in support and affection do not like speaking about themselves. And when I answer the question to people who are truly authentically interested, I will generally be uh, about data. I am a data geek. Like that is, I thought I was cool for years, by the way. I was an athlete and I was a coach and I thought I was cool. But really, when I centered, get close to the center, authentically me, I'm a data geek. I am the person who actually helps people find their strengths with data. Mm, nice. Tell us about more about that. So your your business and the the... Uh, analysis tool that you guys use helps to uncover this a and okay tell us about that where it comes from and, and all these these terms that you're you're using in terms of describing people where do they come from how do we get to them okay so the I need to give you a little bit of context for years I was an athlete for years I was a coach and then I streamed into business is and I ran big teams and I was always good at it because I'm, I'm very high in broad external awareness. I can see and feel and think. And I, I'm intuitive. I can tell whether you're going to be a good person. I can tell how to coach you. And really, my strength was teams. Then I was in a large organization. I get sick. I get cancer. I have to go through chemo. And I put strategies in place to make sure that my team of a large team is taken care of, one of the strategies that I put in place is I bring in a team of Olympic coach. They're not Olympic coaches. They're the people who coach the coaches. Wow. And they use this psychometric tool. And I was fascinated by this tool. It's called TACE, and they use it to select, exclusively select the Navy SEALs, all senior military officers. It gives you your psychological profile in 20 different scales. It's a simple 144 questions, 263 algorithms that give you an answer Then in eight minutes, I can see you and what makes you great. And it's just data. So it's very clear to me. And that tool changed my life. And because I could see so effectively, and I didn't make mistakes. So of the 1,600 kids that I'd coached in the past, there were still five kids that I missed. And I made mistakes, and I didn't help those kids progress, which is really what I'm all about. So that tool changed my life. And it allows me to see how you pay attention, how you communicate, how you lead. And therefore, I can explain to you what your three greatest strengths are. And I always say to the people, it isn't me being kind to you. It's me just reading your data back to you. This is what makes you great. And that's the beauty of it is that when I put it in front of them, they're like, wow. I always thought I was pretty good, but now I really see I'm really good. And all of a sudden, it's like this world of stress has been lifted off of them, and they can sing from the rooftops what makes them awesome. So in 
certain profiles, certain profiles are easily able to see themselves. I, I think it's a bit of a false positive. A lot of people who have a lot of self-confidence. But if you look at a lot of uh, other people, women generally, they don't spend a lot of time self-reflecting. They spend a lot of time giving to other people, not really focusing on themselves. And when you turn the mirror and you put it in front of them and you say, this is what makes you great. They're like, wow, wow, I feel so proud of myself. I didn't know I was so awesome. And then they go down a road and make a huge difference in this world. And they unlock their potential. And that's what I do. I, I really help them unlock their potential. I give them the tools and the clarity that helps them see what makes them great. Yeah. We met a, a couple of times, once randomly, and then got reintroduced by our, our friend Stephen Caldwell. And uh, you're even selling yourself short. You're so good at this, this kind of thing now. You had me pegged. I've never done the analysis. And you had me pegged within about five minutes of talking to me. Yeah. Um, so you're selling yourself short on, on that. But that's why I wanted to have this conversation with you guys and the idea of this leadership being within you already. And, and there, are, there are tools, whether it's data, whether it's handwriting, that we can actually use uh, to put that mirror up to people. Um, but I'm going to flip it over to, to Jamie because I want to I understand where your uh, um, handwriting analysis came from, and then I want you to do it for us. I want to I show people how it works live. But so what was the story behind it? How do you go from even Saturday Night Live, being a teacher, handwriting analysis, how does this all fit together? Where does it come from? When I was 12 years old, I had a stuttering issue. Uh, My mom, who was a teacher and also was a handwriting analyst, looked at my writing and she saw two traits, fluidity of thought, which looks like figure eights. It's a writer of some speakers and writers. And also she saw high goals. And she said, honey, I think one day you're going to strive to achieve these things. Now I was totally skeptical. I said, mom, are you telling me you can analyze my personality based on a few strokes on the page? That's ridiculous. Well, I didn't totally say that because my mom is my hero. But what it did is it planted a seed that I could change and then I could grow. And In your interview with Joe Dumars, he talks about the importance of the process. The psychological process that he looks at in analyzing players is more important than than their resume, than what they've achieved. So from that moment on, when my mother saw this in me, it developed a growth mindset. It was a pivotal moment that I wanted to understand why I behave the way I, I do and why others behave the way they do. And being, I would describe myself as a situational uh, introvert or situational extrovert, depending on how you want to see it. When I worked at Saturday Night Live, I used it as the ultimate icebreaker because I was a shy Canadian guy in his early 20s. I was surrounded by writers, producers, comedians, a lot of some extroverted, and they all wanted me to analyze their personality through their writing. So the act of writing starts in your brain. It sends a signal down the nervous system to your hands, and your fingers carry out the directive of your brain. So your writing paints a picture of what you think. And each stroke that you're about to make on that page is directly correlated to a particular personality trait. And where you were saying that Nancy has the gift of being able to read people within five minutes or less, what this has done for me is I can look at someone's handwriting and with a high degree of accuracy, so I've been told over the last 25 years that started as a hobby and then became a framework in which I then go into other ideas and themes that are important to me within leadership. It's like a personality x-ray machine. And it's based on the data. In my case, the data are the strokes on the page. I'm not reading people. I don't have the gift that Nancy would but I have the ability to look at a combination of strokes and I can see a hundred personality traits in someone's writing. And within less than a minute, I can share a few strengths that may show up in the writing, which is why we call it brain writing or frozen body language. And your signature is what you want the world to see. That's your authority in the world. Your writing is who you truly are. And you can see how they're aligned. And sometimes people show a different face publicly than who they are privately. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just how they show up. And it can help them bring awareness to that. I have two comments to that. Number one, I actually think you're very high in broad external awareness. You read body language. Like I said, when we walked in, I was like, whoa, you jumped into my soul. Your eyes, you read, 
And and your the energy that you bring is like you lean into people immediately. So you're reading a lot of that data points before you're actually getting to the handwriting too. And I would pinky swear on that one. And the second one is I totally forgot what the second one was. I got stuck on my pinky swear. Well, I would say the, yes, when you said that to me when we walked in, um it took me aback a bit because there may have been truth in that. Just the way you said it was was quite accurate. I said no, but I think I said no, meaning um, I wasn't sure how to respond in the moment. But when it comes to the handwriting, I'm not judging your body language. I have, I will get, uh, even by people who say that's right on, they'll say, are you reading my mind? You're reading my body language? But I'm not. I'm justifying it with the strokes on the page. But what it does do I do have a certain, I may have a certain level of intuitive awareness, which I've developed almost separately from handwriting, but may have drawn me to handwriting analysis. Just like you have the gift of personalizing your reading in order to suit the person, I do the same thing with what I do. Mm -hmm. So when we're across from each other, I will say things that I feel you may need to hear at that point in that moment, knowing but not always knowing why you need to hear that. And that has been helpful to people. So people will line up for hours after my talks, not so much for me, but more because they're interested to hear if there's something that can help them. So in that moment, I'll give them what I feel they need. Sometimes I'm sure it's helpful. Maybe other times it's not. So you are intuitive. You you are yes. reading body language and energies from people. I am, but I'm justifying every stroke because a stroke is a stroke wherever you find it, mm -hmm. according to handwriting analysts. And so it's not about the body language. It's about the strokes. But my art of telling you what you need to hear or what I feel would be helpful is based on how you're showing up. Mm -hmm. So what do you need to make this happen? Let's Let's do it. What do you need from me? Well, here's what you both can do. We, we can keep this short. Is There is two, uh, one line on there. And everybody at home, I would recommend uh, if you or ask you if you'd like to participate. If you flip it over, it says, I told you and your purple people eater friend, take that silly monkey and go back to the darn zoo and then sign your name underneath. So whoever's listening at home, get out a pen and paper. We'll wait for you. And write, I told you and your purple people, eater friend, take that silly monkey and go back to the darn zoo. So we're writing that. You're writing that. Okay. And then our signature underneath. Right. So Got if it. you print, usually you can print. If you do cursive where you connect the letters, you can do cursive. More sample, the better. And then sign your name as you would to a friend. Not necessarily on a bank statement, which is a rush. That's fine, but don't overthink it. Just do it. I have the other thing that I wanted to share with you. I have... I can tell when I'm in the zone by how I'm writing. If I am writing a certain way, because I write pages and pages, that's how I think I write. Yeah. And if I'm when I'm in the zone, I can tell I'm in the zone by how my handwriting is. When I'm distracted, I can tell how I'm distracted by my handwriting. Mm. Yeah, it, it will show. Yes, our writing doesn't change, but our moods sometimes do. And we feel differently about ourselves at different times. Sometimes you have a lower confidence. Other times you feel on top of the world. I'll share a few traits that you can actually look for that we don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, that you can monitor your own state, your own level of awareness mm -hmm. about yourself, mm -hmm. your own emotional reactions or responses. Okay, so you both have that down. So I haven't done mine yet. Go. Just continue with him. I just want to share one other thing. This is how his work and my work actually marriage. Uh, there's a good marriage here because uh, I am high in distractibility and the light when I'm writing drives me nut the shadow. So it will affect how I am thinking and the focus. So it's it's like when you get people to do their handwriting, do you set them up in an environment where they are at their best so that it brings out their authentic self? That's an interesting question. Was usually in a room full of people, they're all doing it simultaneously, so they're feeding off the energy in the room. So to answer the question is, um, 
Not necessarily. Where you write, like you said, uh, has an impact on also your moods. Um, but I would say there's not much of a change. Yeah. And I asked you that question when, when I came to meet you, Nancy, about where people do your test as well. Mm -hmm. uh, it's always been my big thing with uh, science in general is the environments that we're actually measuring this stuff in. They yeah. do affect the outcome. And in your book, you talk about that, and that was the point that challenged me was how important context was in mm. leadership, where traits may not be as effective in, in choosing leaders today based on the data. I'd like to hear what Nancy has to say about that after, as context is. And I would say that the traits we're about to see now, uh, this is only two lines of writing, so I'll look at sometimes several pages of writing to get an example, because this is more of like a quick snapshot. If you see one or two traits in a person as a first impression, it may leave you with the feeling that this person is X, Y, or Y, but it doesn't necessarily represent their whole context. You don't know the context that they're dealing with right now. Mm -hmm. So what we're about to do is I'm going to um, go through it, and at home you can look at your writing. I'm going to be explicit and to the point as possible, um, and uh, we'll, we'll look at three traits on the spot, okay? And we can even look at some of the traits from your from the taste test, because I looked it up beforehand, and there's a few uh, a few traits that could be connected or in alignment based on handwriting, mm -hmm. okay? So okay, let's look at your writing right now. Okay. I, I'm gonna, okay, I, I can look at your writing afterwards, but let's do this with everyone at home. Okay, okay so um, what, uh, can you describe your handwriting as going straight, down, or slightly up? Now look at, Line to line or word to word? Is it slightly going upward? Is it straight along the line or is it slightly going down? How would you describe straight yours? Straight along the line. Straight along the line? Mine's straight along the line as well. Okay, so straight along the line, if writing is going up with an upward slant, that tends to represent optimism. Okay, so optimism would be seeing the opportunity in a crisis. Or Martin Seligman says a muscular calm in the face of, uh, of uh, difficult circumstances or in the midst of the storm. If it's straight along the line, it tends to be realism. So it's not, it's, a, it's just a balance. It's not overextending optimism, nor is it pessimistic. It tends to be more of a realist. So if you look at your writing at home, for example, Jeff Bezos' writing, it tends to be slightly upward. Okay, well, Bill Gates is right flat along the line. Okay, so, so that would be one trait that we could see in our writing. Actually, Apollo uh, Feeder talks about the, their studio being uh, developed based on the idea of turning um, a scrap heap into an opportunity. Okay, mm -hmm. so uh, Seligman also said that it's important to look at a situation and solve it on the problem's terms and not sugarcoat it. So optimism can be a disadvantage. It can be a liability if we overextend it. Now, would you um, do? How do you write your capital I? Do you write it straight down, or do you have uh, a ledge on the top and the ledge on the bottom? How would you describe it? Straight down. Straight down. I'm a straight down as well. Okay. So writing. Okay. So writing it straight down, uh, a capital. Now, how big is it compared to the rest of the writing? It's exactly the same size. Okay. I'm, I'm bigger. I'm probably double the size. Okay, so double the size may represent someone who has extreme confidence in certain circumstances, Correct. right? So regardless of how you, you show up, remember the, the writing is on the subconscious level, there is a, a very strong sense of self-confidence, okay, which has served you. If it is equal to the size, again, this is one sample, I'll look at pages and pages, one sample of, the, of, of a line, um, First of all, it both means independence. So this is independent of the good or bad opinion of other people uh, when it's straight down. It's also constructive and creative usually. Now, if that is straight down like this, and it's balanced. So again, it's not, um, you're seeing yourself with a healthy level, not that yours isn't, it's a healthy level of confidence, but it's not um, overestimating yourself. You tend to possibly put others first uh, when you judge them. Um, now. Look at your signatures, okay? Uh, how would you consider your signatures large or would you consider your signatures small compared to the rest of the writing? Larger. Larger. What about you? Well, mine's larger. Okay. So uh, large signatures tend to command respect in social situations, uh, tend to walk with confidence, to be bold. Uh, you tend to have had your own back 
over many, many years, you've developed this ability. It's not a mask, but it's projecting uh, a powerful form of charisma. It's authentic. Um, now, let me look at the writing and I'll tell you a few more details because I wasn't looking at it in details. Okay, and I'll describe what I'm seeing. So at home, you can also see if you have some of these traits too. Okay, so... So this is me. Yeah, so, so, so this is Cody. So there's a higher degree of integrity. Integrity in the sense of walking your talk. If you look at the circular letters in the middle zone, they are circular. You've really developed. So if you have circular letters in the middle zone, which are free of lines, it doesn't mean that if you have lines within your writing that you don't have integrity because the opposite trait in handwriting is not necessarily the opposite uh, characteristic. But in this case, there's a high degree of uh, of uh, integrity. Now, you tend to put up some um, emotional distance. It takes you time to really trust. You need to really get to know people before you trust. Um, and I see that because the writing is capitalized uh, and there's not a lot of connection in the writing, right? So it's putting up those strong emotional walls. Now your writing is large. There's a lot of creativity in the upper loops. Uh, now Cody has on his R a really big loop on the upper end. That That is a applied abstract imagination. So this powerful way of taking novel ideas and creating some type of synergy between ideas that don't seem to coexist into something greater than they are. Now, you underestimate, you may underestimate yourself, even though you have confidence, we are all these, uh, there, there, there's a certain um, dichotomy within ourselves. So even though you show this projected self-confidence in the large size of your writing, how many people out there don't write out your first name? Probably a good, percentage of it, uh, you do like Cody. So Cody is, but he likes to be seen, but not always known for who he truly is at first, which directly connects with the lack of connection with the writing. So you like to be seen, but not always known. And I see this with certain celebrities. They're more comfortable yeah. projecting, but it takes time to get through those walls um, or for you to open up, right? It's not a bad thing. It's just uh, how you operate. And the last thing I'll say is... Um, I see printing takes a little bit more time. I can read cursive a little more because printing, there's less um, ideas there. Um, I would say that uh, one more thing about you that stands out is you have a good degree of both creativity and again, through that magic, uh, through that ability to have those big, large loops and there's some analytical ability as well through the M's, the pointed M's. The M's are not rounded. M's and N's tends to be an analytical form of uh, looking deeply into ideas of analyze, analyzing data in a clear, simple uh, way to summarize it. So you have that good ability to both create ideas and to summarize them, uh, to summarize data, to analyze data. Okay, hold on a second. Interesting. <clears throat> I'm going to translate his language into my language. Right. This is how I would, re so you said trust. So he's high in control, high in physically competitive, and high in self-confidence, which are the three traits that are reflective of good leaders. They want to step up. They don't mind taking control when there's a need. They don't, they love to lead. They're driven to win and they know they can do it. They have belief in themselves. The one thing that you will see in people who are high in those three scales is that they have to you they will be closed until they respect you. You have to earn their trust and respect. If they don't respect the people that they're with, they will tend not to be that interested. The second thing, he's probably very high in analytical conceptual. He pays attention with a broad uh, strategic view. He's able to solve complex problems. And he's able to very effectively analyze and synthesize complex information. Yes. So that's the second one. And the third one is he probably has a very healthy level of self-critical. So he expects a lot of himself. The average self-critical of a world champion athlete is 63%, and Cody's probably about 50%, which means he pushes himself really hard. He not only has expectations of himself, but he has expectations of others. So that's the, a different language. Excellent. But the same connectivity. Yeah. I yes. love that. I love it too, yeah. 
Beautiful. And I think my wife will probably agree with both of you guys. <laughs> but you're high you in, see, what makes you a great leader is that you're very high in support and affection, and therefore people will gravitate to you because you care. But you articulate very effectively that you care. And that's the type of leadership in that we need to build the world. That's the type of coach we need to build the world. I agree. It's a whole other conversation. Okay. So, Nancy, so a few things that stand out. The slant of your writing and at home, this is difficult to see if you're not looking at this like I am for many, many years. But Nancy's writing slants slightly to the right, okay? You can do that by quickly putting a line along the baseline. That's the imaginary line underneath the line of writing. And look at where it slants, the bottom point to the top point. Again, difficult to see, but her writing, you can just look at writing. It will look like it's going this way. That tends to be high in compassion, empathy, getting in people's the ability to really understand people on a deeper level. Again, this isn't me reading or intuitive. This is the writing. The stroke is a stroke on the page. I'll show Nancy her own writing in a second. It's consistently to the right. It's also high EQ, emotional intelligence in terms of understanding people's pain points and also uh, really celebrating with them in terms of their wins and their pleasure. She shows fluidity of thought. Fluidity of thought is the trait that my mother saw in me when I was young. That looks like a figure eight in your Y's, your J's, or your G's. You also see this with athletes. You see this figure eight. DeMar DeRozan has it. Steve Nash has it. Uh, Serena Williams has it. It looks like a figure eight where the mind and body connection is in tune. She has that um, in the second line of her writing with uh, a capital letter. Now, what's interesting uh, on top of that is she also has a high degree of sensitivity to people. She has a sensitivity about how she's perceived in a way that the sensitivity works as a strength and not a curse. It's a strength because she it adds to the compassion, the ability of uh, treating others as she would have others be, treat her. You can see sensitivity in the small D strokes and T strokes. The D stroke has a loop in the upper part. So you have the line that comes underneath the circle, not there, because that's obviously, that's a circle. If there is a loop in the upper part, that represents a form of sensitivity. I have this trait. Steve Jobs has this trait. Many leaders have this sensitivity. Tony Robbins, Michael Jordan, Frida Kahlo have this sensitivity, which, which you see in people sometimes connected with compassion, but not always in this case you do. Now, what it also shows in Nancy is, Nancy also has high creativity, high abstract imagination, concept, you called it with, uh, with Cody, conceptual, uh, the ability to come up with new ideas. You see that in the large upper loops, consistent, massively large upper loops. So that's an openness to new ideas. And we see, um, that there's the incredibly uh, detailed persistent stroke. The persistent stroke is when anywhere in your writing, it happens in her signature, but it could happen in other places, the line goes back to the past, back to the left, and it shoots forward back into the future with strength. You see that with people who have overcome pain. It can be physical and emotional pain. They have learned from what's happened to them, and she's coming forward with extraordinary stroke. It's this long, winding stroke that actually, like Terry Fox, if you look at Terry Fox in his G's, uh, in the lowercase, the descending stroke, right at the point at the bottom, it gets stronger. There is a dot. That's just when things are at their hardest, he finds within him and go from strength to an extraordinary level of determination. So Nancy has a stroke which right at the end, it gets stronger. Do you see that? And it's not about the pen, it's about her on the subconscious level going back to the past and shooting forward with strength. Let me break that down into data. Good. And you said open, I have an openness. So I am very low in reduced flexibility. I, I am equally able to change if we need to change. I have that flexibility. So reduced flexibility, you said openness. You said um, creative. So the combination where my strengths are is that I'm very, very good, like Cody, at solving complex problems and seeing 
analyzing and synthesizing very complex information and simplifying it, communicating it and simplifying it. And then I'm also very high on the rules and risk scale, which means I am very, how I solve those problems is very creatively. And that's what is showing up in your, you you said EQ or high support and affection. I am very high in support and affection. I care. I express that I care. I'm low in criticism and anger. I don't see bad. I only see good. I only see in your body language because I'm uh, very high and intuitive. I can read what makes you great. So I will share what makes you great because that's what high, you call it EQ. It's really high in support and affection. So it is very interesting how you can speak in language A and I can speak in language B. And ultimately, it's still, it, it's right, it's interesting, and it helps people see and feel what makes them great. It's fun. Very fun. Yeah. And, and so I want to talk about this in kind of a, a leadership context because this is the whole point of this discussion is this is where we need to go with, with leadership now is understanding who these people are. The way we've traditionally gotten to know who, who we're going to choose, who we're going to have on our team is we bring them in for a 30-minute interview and we ask them these you know, questions that we've Googled and uh, ask them about a time where they solved one problem and, and everyone answers the same and, and we choose that person because we like them. Usually it's because we like the same band that they like or we have the same car that they like. Whereas <clears throat> we can actually get a lot deeper with this stuff and whether it's through handwriting, whether it's through um, actually getting to the point of being able to identify their own self-talk and uh, and how they view themselves in the world, whether it's data, um, that allows leaders to lead. This is my whole point with contextual leadership is in the right context. So you can actually individualize the, the leadership journey for each individual and create an umbrella uh, that's kind of leading us towards our our why as a company or our why as a team. Um, so for us, kind of at the forefront of this, how do we start to actually implement this on a day-to-day basis? What, what are some of the things, I'll start with you, Nancy. If you were to walk into a workplace, and I know you do this anyway, if you were to walk into a workplace right now, your typical corporate environment that's kind of stuck in 1992 and acts like uh, Wall Street, um, how do we move the needle closer towards what we're talking about here where leaders are identified properly and then once they're put into place are actually connecting with their team and, and can adapt their style to what you've been talking about? My theories are that we spend a lot of time on the feeder system of talent. So I work below the line. I don't work above the line. I don't do a lot of work with executives. I do a lot of work with the people that are filtering up through the system. Because I know this, in the first 15 years, 10 to 15 years, you are taught functional skills. You are not taught leadership skills. There are 16 leadership competencies. And my theory is, and what I have tested and proven, is that you don't worry about the 15 other ones, you worry about the meta-competency of self-awareness. And if you can build people to have a level of self-awareness, what makes them great, build their confidence in the first 10 years of their career, you understand you, then you're able to connect with others, and that ultimately is your opportunity to be a better leader. So I start from the funnel that's the bottom of the world. Interns, coordinators, managers, directors, generally the people above tend to be uh, a little less malleable. So I work where they are the most malleable. And then we create a pool of talent that is really ready to lead. And what I know is not only do you create a level of self-awareness, but you also put them into psychologically safe testing environments so they can learn. And and that is vital for their development, vital for building confidence. Because that, for me, whether it's sport and you're building an athlete or, or business and you're building a team, that your number one job as a leader is to build confidence. Well, how do you build confidence? Yeah, find out what makes them great and you focus on what makes them great. And I conclude with this. I can't tell you how many people come up to me and talk about their weaknesses. And I, like you've quoted Seligman, I, I, I'm all positive because if you have a weakness, I am low in action focus. Detail for me? Uh-uh. Can't remember even where, what time we're supposed to be down here. I'll probably be half an hour late. 
The reality is, why are you focusing on trying to change that? Because that will never change. I've recognized that, and I stand proudly that I am terrible at weakness. Therefore, I build my team around me that is high in criticism and anger and high in action focus or high in detail. So don't focus on the weakest. Focus on the strengths. Build from the bottom. Build a pool, an army of really good-hearted, self-aware people. Yeah, that understand themselves and their their strengths as well. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, Jamie, I love, you know, on your site, you talk about this idea of co-created leadership and and teams in general. Um, What does that mean to you? And and kind of, you know, from Nancy, like what's your theory in terms of what we need to change? Where do we need to be headed in this conversation? Well, my background, the context is I, I worked at in a corporate entertainment environment at a pretty low level to the to the mid, to the me, uh, middle uh, at Saturday Night Live and for Lorne Michaels, and then I worked as an educator, uh, as a teacher, department head, and uh, ran student activities for twelve years. What I saw in those disparate environments was the individuals, the leaders within the teams, who developed themselves were essentially working on others. And like to Nancy's point, those who had the most self-awareness of their strengths and they focused on those strengths and they developed those strengths, they tended to really empower, I don't know if I love that word, their teams. They were team players. And um, that was the same for a writer in a writer's room who had to work with a team of people, his self-awareness or her self-awareness about their strengths and developing particular sketches. Or that was uh, the people that I worked with, my colleagues as educators in my department about understanding what part of, I was an English teacher, what part of uh, was their strengths? Were they better at teaching grammar or were they better at teaching presentation styles and really showing the students their passion for those areas? And so I can't really build on Nancy's, I thought that was a perfect answer. But what I can say is that what I've learned uh, through my experiences over the, the last 20 years, is that, like you were saying, I'm reaffirming self-awareness and strengths-focused seem to be the qualities that high-achieving or leaders who win, but also, like Joe Dumar say, enjoy the process and really uh, uh, work on themselves. They're also working on their teams. I mean, personal uh, leadership is... Developing yourself personally is also developing yourself professionally. Absolutely. I think there's also a, a framework to discussion to be had here as well in terms of clearing out. Um, well, part of this self, self-awareness discussion becomes the humility to say, I'm not actually the leader in this context. I'm not the leader of this team. And, and that might be that there's, you're not the leader at that time anymore it might be that you're not the leader amongst that group. And so what we've done in the corporate world especially is you reach manager level and then that's it. You're only a manager for the rest of your career. And when we really unpack teams and how teams work, that can't be true. That for the next 25 years of your life in every team that you run, you're the actual leader of that team. And so my point here is that there's also a uh, a framework that needs to come down that we built in the the old world, let's call it, and needs to be rebuilt around how do we build the best team to deliver this project, this uh, this operational um, capability, this uh, sports team, and actually pick the best leader at that time for that team. And I think if we can put all of that together uh, from an individual self-awareness perspective, but then also from a uh, a framework and a uh, an organizational perspective, I think we'll be on a better path if we can do that. So I might be a VP of one team and then just an individual contributor of the next team because that's the best role for me to play on that team. And that should be okay. And I think in the future it has to be okay for that to happen. So Dr. Tasha Urich, t- Urich talks about uh, self-awareness and how people who are high in self-awareness are better leaders, followers, and teammates. So you're right. They can mold in between those roles, regardless if if your role is X today and, and Y tomorrow, they're able, they're malleable. And that is 
what I see is that we promote people based on a functional skill success. You're great at sales. Congratulations. You made your numbers. You exceeded your you're numbers. The boss Congratulations. Now. <laughs> you're going to lead a team of 20. And then you just implode because you're high in physically competitive. You're high in control. You're high in a false confidence. You Nobody teaches you how to lead. We aren't teaching people how to lead until 10, 12 years into their career. And by then, if you look at the way that habits form, the way that the brain works, we are closed, we protect ourselves because the expectation is that we should be a good leader. And mm -hmm. typically what you see is people start to implode. They will spend more time in the bar instead of with their team. They'll start to – because they really – nobody's teaching them, but they have this barrier to actually ask for help. I want to talk about within what you were just talking about there, even age. So we're, we're not training people to be leaders early on. But it seems to me the people that I gravitate towards and, and tend to show up in the media at the moment are young leaders, funnily enough. So within – we talk about this guy a lot within the NFL. Sean McVay just led his team to the Super Bowl. He's 32, just turned 33. Jacinda Ardern, New Zealand Prime Minister's 38, um, and you know has just blown up on this global scale in terms of leadership. How do we get away from what you were talking about there, where it's it's either a tenure thing or a skill set thing in terms of we promote the sales leader, or we just promote the most tenured person? Because it's it's getting really, really clear that age has nothing to do with it. And then I guess, you know, yeah, how can we develop systems that identify those leaders younger? Well, I think uh, what Nancy's doing in terms of the data as a starting point, if you're talking about how to identify leaders, that to me seems like uh, the future in terms of a a first important step to better understand people. Okay, so I have obsessed, because I'm obsessed about developing better leaders, and let me just share in a very succinct way that I have developed a five-level process that you funnel a ton of people in at level one, and you gradually increase pressure and expectation of performance as you go up the levels. I'm not going to go through the detail of the levels, but the fascinating thing, if we funnel 100 people into level one, who you expect would pop out because of what you see in all of the data points, who you expect to pop out as the best performer is not the best performer that you expected. They're amazed hmm. because people... And as you take them through this process, they start to fall off for whatever reason. And very much about leadership is how you communicate and all these other things, but it's how you can handle the pressure. And you look at, it's not always the best athlete that makes the national team. It's not always the best athlete that wins the Olympics. It's the person that can handle the pressure. So it's fascinating that at the end of the journey that we've taken these people through at level five, who the level five leader really is. So when we train them, mm -hmm. you put them into these situations so that when they are a leader, they handle that pressure. They know what to do. Don't close up like the guy who got promoted doesn't really know how to lead but won't ask for help and goes to the bar instead. Don't like put them into psychologically safe environments where they can test and coming back to we build confidence based on strengths. So it really is how do you build confidence based on strengths earlier in the career trajectory? And what I have learned is it's this simple. It's about positive emotional connection to yourself and then to others. And how do you build positive emotional connection? You talk. You talk to these people. And I would say three things have been key in how we've developed leaders. You ask, you listen, and you share. As a group, a team member, as a person, I ask you questions about you. You ask me questions about me. I listen. You listen. We share. We are connected. We are a unit. And we've only known each other for 32 minutes. But how easy is that and how infrequent is that process of just connecting and talking? So often in business, you see people protecting themselves. They only bring 
half of themselves to work. So the last point I wanted to say back before was, and this, Claude says this too, it's like the expectation of the leader is to talk, ask, listen, share, but it's also the expectation of the teammate, the person on the team. I don't care if you're an intern or you're a coordinator, what role you have, you still have a voice. And the expectation is that you should share that voice. And it really is about meeting in the middle. You can't become connected to yourself if you're not talking, listening, sharing. And as the leader, uh, you've got to set the psychological environment so that people feel comfortable talking. You guys are a great example. Look at your body language. You're leaning into me. I feel very comfortable speaking and being authentic. That's all people need to do in business is set this environment where I am real. I am me and don't criticize me, but celebrate me. And if I'm annoying you, then then I'll leave the room. <laughs> to your point, and we've talked about this a bunch as well uh, off air, but it's the most ridiculous thing in the world to me that we put someone into a position of, of management within an organization when they're 42, 43, 44, 45, and we ask them to hire the next person into that team. And at that stage, they've probably never actually been in a job interview before and been on the interviewing side. That is the most ridiculous thing to me, that throughout that whole 20 years of their career to that point, they might have been interviewed, but then we're trusting that person wholeheartedly with that in, with with adding the next person onto that team. And that just doesn't make sense to me. And, and there's I think there's a lot of opportunities for that work to take place to your point earlier on. My question, I'm going to ask both of this in your expertise. On the data side, how much do people change during their formative years? So we're talking about getting leadership into people at an earlier age. Would my reading for you, Nancy, at 18 and 25 and 35 be the same, similar? Would I have changed through my formative years, through my external environment? Um, how much am I changing over time? What I have seen in the data is that you certain scales will flex, but I will always be high in the intuitive. I'll always be high in broad external awareness, uh, in broad internal awareness, and in rules and risk. Like those are scales that won't change. What has changed for me is my action focus has actually gone down, which is a good thing. You want leaders to be the theorists and the strategists and see two or three years out, you don't want them in the detail. Right. So yes, you can flex. Again, it's just what are your strengths and capitalizing on your strengths. I worked for many years at the detail level and I probably exhausted myself because I was working really hard. So my data would have been high, but in fact, that's my lowest attentional style. So let's just forget that one and focus on the ones that I'm really good at. Mm -hmm. So yes, there are there's certainly flexibility. You do grow, but your core self, really, if you're paying attention to your core self, uh, it won't change. I don't see it changing in the data very much. Yeah. What about handwriting? Yeah. Do you see that? Like, to your point, the core self remains quite stable over time. There are certain characteristics back to Joe Dumar's point about that process, where when there's external events in one's life that may be traumatic, that may shift a person in one direction or the next. For example, someone who's quite outgoing when they're younger, there may be something happen that makes them retreat and feel more comfortable going inward, not always going outward. Someone who's sensitive, like I always had this trait, that sensitivity is still there sensitive to uh, caring a little bit too much about what others think, but now it's not as pronounced and inflated as it was when I was 13 years old. So we have something called graphotherapy in handwriting. So I'm a certified graphotherapist, which I find fascinating to this day because I've done it on myself and I've worked with people and I've know people who have been helped by this. And it's the idea of you can consciously change certain letter formations and that can have a positive impact on the transformation, or maybe that's a strong word, the change of certain habits. So for example, if one is, in my case, quite sensitive to criticism, 
about how I'm perceived, about how my ideas are taken within a leadership context by simply making that loop on that D less pronounced, just bringing awareness to it, not being hard on myself and seeing it as a strength, then it can be maintained and grow as a strength, that sensitivity that I can tap into my creativity and my empathy for others, my ability to connect with people and not get to the point where it's overextended or overused. So in that case, I've had it my entire life. It's part of my DNA. It's part of who I am. I really believe it's innate. But I can now see it as a strength and not as a liability. Mm -hmm. But yes, there are things that change about in us and things that don't. And that's they're both part of our authentic self. I think it's embracing and owning. And when we embrace and we own those things that have stayed with us, and even the way we have changed to survive and thrive over decades then we really tap into what you were saying earlier in our talk, I think, about what's authentic, that true authentic core, both our strengths and our areas that are strengths but may show up on a different scale or in a different way. Fascinating. We'll start to wrap this up, but I actually want to, this is how we, we finish up every show. What, what are you fascinated by and intellectually stimulated by right now? What are you working on that's maybe not in your work? It might just be something completely different. You might be studying, Nancy, you might be studying old SNL skits or uh, model cars or trains or something that's kind of taken your, your brain and you're trying to either learn more about or solve at the moment. Yeah, I'm not sure you really want me to unpack this. <laughs> it, this is where... My brain goes, and this is what I grunt, teeth-grinding obsession. Can we build a team of athletes with data? And can we help teams like Connor McDavid connect with his team better? He's young. He's been promoted to an, a, co a captain's role. Can we help him by understanding psychological data through this particular tool, mm -hmm. and that will then help him understand what his strengths are and then help him communicate with his team. And then can you build a team around him with data? Who's good? I'm, I'm not going to talk hockey because I can't talk hockey. But who's good on – you build a, an entire soccer team based on data. If you are in the, uh, the defense and you are a sweeper, you need to have – this certain attentional style. If you're a striker, you need to have this certain attentional style. Yep. So can you build a team based on data? And I am obsessed with that. Okay, because I believe I know I can. I believe I know I can. That was a contradiction. I know I can. And here's the one piece of information that we're obsessing about right now, match officials. So what does, okay. the, what does the profile of a match official look like? What are the strengths that a match official has to bring? If we, we started to analyze these match officials and we are seeing data patterns and we're seeing, like, it, for me, to be successful match official, what do you need to bring to the game? And why are there breakdowns in communication between the match official and the coach? And can we teach them how to connect and communicate? Because I think one, match officials speak Chinese and, and coaches speak German, and they're actually not speaking with each other. They're speaking at each other. And that's really what businesses are doing wrong. They speak at each other. They don't speak with each other. There's no communication to connect. And so I pull it into the soccer environment, and we're now obsessing over the data patterns of a match official. And my kids are like, Mom, could you please be quiet? <laughs> so that's what I'm obsessing about, yeah. Interesting. Well, I'm certainly not on a Gary Vaynerchuk level with this, but my goal is to buy a team. Mm -hmm. uh, that That's my my one life goal, and it's not the New York Jets necessarily. I think a football team, a soccer team, would be really interesting because I – I think we could. I agree with you. Uh, so let's keep talking about that. I've been talking to Joe Dumas about that as well. We want to buy something. Yeah. I'll call you at 4.30 in the morning when I've got it all sketched out. <laughs> what about you, Jamie? What, what's, what do you think about when you're on the streetcar or the, the subway? Well, sticking with the theme of handwriting, right? It's not the, my only interest, but I'm interested in 
two different components of handwriting. One is connecting to data-informed leadership surveys to see if there's any overlap or connections between the traits, the hundred traits, and the infinite number of patterns that I can see with data from verified or validated leadership surveys. That's one thing. The other one has to do with teen mental health. My background is as a teacher. Mm -hmm. I'm a father of two kids, a a son and a daughter who are younger. Um, And it was inspired to see, I was inspired to see if there are connections between helping teenagers in looking at their handwriting, even though kids do not write as much as they used to. Although that's a bit of a fallacy because journal sales, if you go into Indigo, there are more journals than ever before. People are writing, mostly older, but my students uh, would write consistently, is to see if you can help a young person by identifying certain traits in order to better understand them. And so as a teacher, that was important to me. It's also important to me because... I have a good friend from my past who I saw recently, Luke Richardson, who's an assistant coach for the Montreal Canadiens, former number one draft choice of the Toronto Maple Leafs. And he lived in our house. He was our billet in his first year for the Leafs. And I looked up to him like a big brother. He's a hero of mine as a kid. And we used to play road hockey on the street like we did in the 1980s in hockey, I think, before you came here. And we used to yell, car, and then everyone would pull the, you know, our makeshift pylons. And one day, Luke came home, and he brought all the Maple Leafs. He brought a, a car of some of the top, the most famous hockey players really in the world at that time, and they played street hockey with us too. So I grew up, and this was a dream. But that's not the point. The point is... What really made me look up to him as one of the great mentors of my life is him and his wife, Stephanie, went through the most tragic event that I can ever imagine parents going through, which is one of their two daughters, Darren, suddenly took her own life a few years ago. But they turned that private pain into a public calling to bring awareness to teen mental health. And they named the organization Do It For Darren and the color of which Luke wears every game that he coaches. When I saw him, he was wearing a purple jacket because that was Darren's favorite color. Hmm. And when we went to that funeral in Ottawa, my whole family went, my mom, my dad, my sister and I, we jumped on a plane and went to support him in Ottawa. In front of thousands of people, this young girl made such an impact beyond her years And I made a commitment, I wasn't speaking then, uh, that I would use any platform I had when I could to mention this particular charity and to do something about it. So I merge handwriting and my speaking. And the last talk I gave, which was a week and a half ago, uh, with a group of 300 mompreneurs, and I found a way to incorporate that. And so that is what I'm passionate about in terms of something beyond me and... I will continue to be. Me too. Uh, count me in, and I'm sure you will be as well, Nancy. I know you're passionate about uh, youth and, and em- empowering them, and mm-hmm. um, and you can get on board with that as well. My favourite part, I mentioned this earlier, my favourite part of doing this show is the matchmaking part, and I'm glad that we brought you guys together. You didn't know each other beforehand. I think you guys can both help each other in multiple levels. So. Thank you for coming together. Where can we find you, Jamie? Where can people listening at home find you uh, and what you're doing? Well, my website, jamiemasoncohen.com. You're pretty active on LinkedIn as well? Yeah, I have a little LinkedIn show called Chalk Talk. Where Which is I, awesome. Thank you. Where I talk about uh, issues that are important to me through the lens of handwriting on a black chalkboard. You're a very good communicator. You have great cadence, great pauses. You are never saying, um, uh, uh, you rarely go off on tangents and not close the loop. You always close the loop, which is your high in action focus. It's good. You're a very good orator. Thank you. Very good communicator. And I, I complimented you because you're also high in support and affection, which is actually something I think your mother gave you. I, Mm. I, I heard that anyway. Uh, they, I always say this when people ask me for years, my brand was always, 
uh, about a brand that I was working for. Now it's my personal brand. I always deflect. So I always say, call Merrill. I'm building Merrill's. I'm, just call Merrill. Call MerrillEva.com. Go to Merrill. I am on LinkedIn. I'm very, very proactive on LinkedIn sharing stories. You and are. I am on NancyJSpotten.com or Empower Performance. But either one, but call Merrill. She'll answer I won't because I'm low in action focus. Your little daily update on LinkedIn is one of my favorite to get. It's always so different. It's uh, articulate. It's to the point. And there's just there's just nuggets of gold you can take away from from all of it. Uh, so keep doing that. And same for you as well with with uh, your chalkboard. Uh, that's fantastic. Um, like I said, I, I'm thrilled to bring you guys together. And, and thanks for coming into the studio. This is our first all in studio episode. So thanks for being a part of it. And so uh, I hope we can yes. do it again sometime. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Thanks so for fun. having. Thanks, yeah, guys. Good. Awesome. The Where Others Won't podcast is recorded at Apollo Studios in downtown Toronto and is produced and edited by Adam Esker. You can book me to speak by the Where Others Won't book or send me an email at codyroyal.com.